1: Wall Street loves growth. On a day where the Dow drifted 42 points lower, the S&P advanced 0.17%, and the Nasdaq pole vaulted 0.72%. I cannot stress this enough. We want growth if there are tariffs. We want growth with no tariffs. We want growth if the Fed is tightening. We want growth if the Fed's not tightening. We would buy growth on a boat. We would buy growth with a goat. WE WILL BUY GROWTH IN A BOX, WE WILL BUY GROWTH FROM A FOX. Okay, I may have slipped into Dr. load there, but I am trying, I am, I am, to explain why Comcast and Disney are in a multi-billion dollar poker game for Fox's Entertainment Assets, why Fang can keep roaring higher, all-time highs for the lot of them, why Thor Industries came alive today, the hammer, why Oracle's getting hammered, despite an upside surprise, and why Starbucks is being laid to waste. It's all about growth and nothing but the growth. Let's start with Disney's cash and stock boost this very morning for some crucial 21st century Fox assets in order to fend off Comcast's all-cash offer from last week. Disney's willing to fork over 38 bucks a share, up 10 bucks from its previous bid, and 3 bucks higher than what Comcast is offering. Now, it stands to reason that Comcast, the parent company of this network, can pay more. It's got superb cash flow, and most followers of the situation now believe the cable kingpin will come up with at least one more bid one higher bid, forcing Disney to raise their offer yet again. Why are Disney and Comcast willing to spend all this money? It's about growth, especially the growth of India, where these Fox assets dominate. Remember, Walmart recently bought 77% of Flipkart of the Amazon of India for a for a staggering $16 billion. It hurt their stock, by the way, because in 2025, India will be the most populous nation on Earth. Plus, Fox has plenty of iconic franchises, uh, Avatar, Alien, The Simpsons, along with a big stake in Hulu, one of the few enterprises that stands a chance against Netflix. If you're Comcast or Disney and you want accelerated multi-year growth like so many companies do, it's a no-brainer to buy the hitherto massively undervalued Fox assets. Undervalued first because they were never thought to be for sale, and then because we thought any suitor would be blocked for antitrust reasons. Given that the stocks of both suitors have acted well since the contest began in earnest after a federal judge shot down the Justice Department's attempt to block ATT from buying Time Warner, the market is basically saying that to the victor, and the loser go the spoils. The victor gets Fox's fabulous international growth. The loser will have enough borrowing capacity to embark on a truly mammoth buyback. Buy, 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 buy. Still, make no mistake about it, Disney and Comcast will keep rallying until the market perceives that they're finally paying too much for growth. Judging by today's extremely positive action in not one but both stocks, I don't think we've gotten anywhere near the levels with their bids. Higher. How about Fang. Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google now Alphabet are all about growth. It's immune to worries related to tariffs and trade. We just learned today that Facebook's Instagram business now has over a billion monthly active followers. Facebook's about to start monetizing Messenger and it's testing paid for subscription groups. That's all in one day. No trade war can stem any of those growth drivers. Amazon's all about pin action. Last night, FedEx held an extraordinarily positive conference call. The stock should have been up, not down today, where they talked about skyrocketing e-commerce trends. That's why Amazon gave $50.30 today. I'm surprised it actually didn't rally even harder. I would have pegged it for up 25 Netflix, first of all, it's apparent that both Comcast and Disney covered Hulu because they want their flanks protected against Netflix. I buy that, but the more important driver of the stock strength today is the chatter that the company's international signups have actually accelerated again. Remember, that's without China. Alphabet meanwhile is rolling out a whole bunch of new stations on YouTube. We're going to hear later from Flora Albers. She's the CEO of the Red Hot Williams Sonoma, who thinks she gets the most bang for her advertising buck from YouTube. I bet others feel the same. Plus, blessedly, no Google in China. If I didn't know any better, I think the whole Fang acronym. Regina, I got to ask my executive, Regina, who came up with that Fang? There you go. Uh, The whole fang acronym I came up as a way to invest pre-Trump as a way to hit growth in non-China. Pre-Trump. I should have patented it. It's my biggest mistake I've ever made. Now, there are plenty of other growth stocks flying here. Actually, i made a couple other mistakes. Anyway, that's not that's way off topic. Spotify, my favorite subscription play. Twitter, the alternative ad platform. Square and PayPal, the fast growing payment processing place. None of these companies need China. And they all have accelerating growth rates, so they go higher. Guys, all people are doing is looking at China, non-China, growth, buy. Last week, Bob Martin from Thor Industries, uh, the big maker of RVs, came on the show, and he seemed a little subdued because of inventory levels, even as I think he wanted to say that they are better. Marcus Limonis, the star of CNBC's The Profit on Tuesday nights, as well as the CEO of Camping World, said things that I think uh, were similar. But Winnebago, WGO, took all that guesswork off the table this very morning when it told us that inventories are now at last at appropriate levels and business is better despite some painful raw costs. If if that excess inventory has been worked off, the industry can grow again. Growth, which is why Thor and Camping World soared right along with Winnebago. All right. The flip side, of course, is that without growth, your stock is going to get punished. And maybe punished beyond all recognition. Oracle just reported an upside surprise and won some big orders, but the story here is about on premises information technology migrating to the cloud. The thing is, Oracle changed the way it reports so we could no longer follow how quickly the cloud is being adopted by its clients. The co CEO, Mark Hurd, called the carping about the new reporting method on the quarter, on the conference call, a nothing burger. He called it a nothing burger, but the analysts acted as if it were a double cheese baconator from Wendy's. While they were placid on the call, they were pretty vicious about it in their notes, and the stock swiftly plunged 7%. Oracle's problem is that its growth is opaque, but if you want real ugly, just start at Starbucks. Because they're having an in-your-face slowdown while insisting that nothing is wrong. A nothing latte. Starbucks growth in line, get this in China. Growth has sunk from 8% to zero because of two hitherto unflagged problems: cannibalization, so much for the need for more stores everywhere that we kept hearing, and some issues with third-party delivery services that can't have come to us as a surprise to management, but sure did shock us today. Meanwhile, the US numbers meager. Which is why Starbucks is closing 150 locations, and it really calls into question the willy-nilly expansion of licensed stores. The truth is the coffee saturation here in the U.S. is palpable, and the new costs associated with the company's open bathroom policy aren't even being discussed. These guys are in total low-to-no-growth denial, which is how management can stick to their 3 to 5% long-term growth target with a straight face. Now that co-founder and former CEO Howard Schultz has moved on, this was the chance for new CEO Kevin Johnson to finally lower the growth forecast to a level where it can be beaten. Even as he's already guided down three times since he became CEO in April 2017, three out of four. Instead, Johnson continued to overpromise and underdeliver. In a world where growth is all that matters, these guys just don't have it. Yet Starbucks still trades like a growth stock, even after today's brutal 9% decline. What's worth than a slowing growth stock? the stock of a company with no growth. So here's the bottom line. The fulcrum is growth, not trade. Fulcrum, growth, not Fed. Fulcrum, growth, not interest rates. And sadly, all growth is not created equal. Some companies have it and others don't. It can be bought, it can be had. But if it's gone, your stock is going to get obliterated. Nobody wants to pay up today for a nothing burger tomorrow. Alejandro in Florida, Alejandro. How are you, Jim? Um, I'm coming to you live from Tallahassee, Florida. My question for you is about Intel Sat. A friend recommended the stock to me, and as I've been doing my research, the stock just keeps going higher and higher, up 500% this past year, and up 20% today. The company owns satellites to provide data and telecommunication
2: services. Um, With the cost of sending satellites into space going down and the
1: importance of satellites for 5G, is this stock a buy even at these levels? Man, this thing has just taken off like a bat out of hell. And uh, that was a 22% pop. You know what? Let's take the case of Canada Goose. Let's just, I mean, to us just for a second. You cannot buy this stock today. This stock was up another three today. On a percentage basis, it's crazy. Just like it was Canada Goose. Let it come down. I cannot sanction buying this stock today. Don't buy don't I am buy. willing to admit that I missed it. I'm not going to chase. How about Stefano in my home state of New Jersey? Stefano. Hey, Jim, how are you doing? All right. Could be Stefano. I apologize if it isn't. It's either way. It's good. Thank you. Um, my question is about uh, AMC Entertainment. Um, as you might have heard, they recently announced that they will be incorporating a new subscription service um, where customers can go 12, uh, to 12 movies a month for 19.99. competing directly with MoviePass. So how do you feel this will affect the... Well, look, Adam uh, Aaron is like- one real smart fellow. He was the CEO. He was on earlier this afternoon with Kelly and with Wilf and with uh, World Cup Soccer, and I thought it was an excellent com. That's me, guys. You know, ah, come on, you know, during commercials. I And I think AMC's going to work, and I think Adam's a good guy, and what more can I say? It's all about growth. You want it, you need it, you got to have it. Oh, man, I'm going tell you, williams cooked up a rebound, but can it continue? I'm going to sit down with the CEO. Then with the Intuit H&R Block battle for your business, I'll tell you which company come out the victor, but first ah, and then there were none general electric the last original member of the Dow Jones average just got dropped from the index after more than a century what's ahead for the stock I'll give you my take stick with Kramer
2: don't miss a second of mad money follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter have a question tweet Kramer hashtag mad tweets
1: can't get our arms around what's happening with the stock of General Electric. Last night when GE was unceremoniously booted from the Dow and replaced by Walgreens Boots, the first thing I heard from so many was, this has to be the bottom. Of course, that's something we've heard every step of the way from the moment John Flannery replaced the failing Jeff Immelt in August of last year when the stock was at 25. We heard it when we got the big estimate cut in October. We heard it when the dividend was halved in November. We heard it again when the giant long term care charge was taken this January. The bottom, the bottom, the bottom. So now we're supposed to believe that being kicked out of the Dow Jones average after 111 years of being a member in good standing is somehow the bottom? Well, on the basis of what? Uh, irony? Shakespeare? Yet I bet we'll keep hearing it because almost nobody except perhaps Steve Tusa, the president analyst at J.P. Morgan, who's been negative on the stock and had a sell on it from the high 20s, can bring themselves to believe just how bad things were at GE under the ML regime. And that's what we're talking about here. Why? Because GE's financials were as opaque as they could possibly be without running afoul of the SEC or the Justice Department. Uniquely opaque. Consider this company had to take a $6.2 billion charge against earnings at the beginning of this year for long-term care contracts that were on the books since 2004. And then they had to add a $15 billion reserve to GE Capital for more liabilities from the same kind of contracts. These charges, which could not really be foretold by anything public, make you feel like it doesn't even matter what the real earnings are here, not that you can tell what they are anyway. Remember, just a few months ago, uh, just a few months before the CFO, Jamie Miller, told us the company would likely take a $3 billion charge for those contracts, we got the bigger news. It's more than twice that amount before the reserves. That disclosure is totally not CEO John Flannery's fault, but it did make the whole exercise of figuring out how aerospace and healthcare and construction and power and water, oil and gas transportation, it made it feel like how they're doing is pretty meaningless. It's like asking about the layout of the deck chairs in the Titanic. I mean, who cares uh, when you just crash into a huge iceberg? In other words, GE taking on water from these long-term care policies, and we don't really know how much. Hopefully it's done. Maybe it's not. You see, you can't really figure out the extent of the damage because the cost of health care keeps rising in this country. The life expectancy keeps getting longer for the policyholders, and the cost of in-home health care is staggering because there's a tremendous shortage of nurses. And yet these policies are supposed to provide all of that. That's why it's so difficult to believe we're at the bottom. Oh, and it doesn't help that GE effectively doubled down on one of its weakest division's power, with him, incredibly foolish Alstom acquisition. And that deal may require the company to take a gigantic charge, given the rapid shrinkage of the natural gas turbine business and a lack of construction thereof. I know there's plenty of irony to go around for this once-great manufacturer replaced in the Dow by a drugstore chain. There will never be any truth and reconciliation about what really happened at GE. But in all honesty, GE changed a long time ago. We just didn't know it. Sure, GE manufactures great jet engines. It has terrific long-term jet engine service contracts with great gross margins. It makes top flight healthcare equipment. It's got, it's got decent energy exposure. Nevertheless, as these long-term care charges show, General Electric was mainly a really bad financial company. It sold off two of its best divisions, NBC and Synchrony Financial, in 2011, 2015 respectively, both sales coming near the bottom. Then it went all in uh, oil and gas at the top. I know from experience that NBC Universal was an afterthought to GE. Jeff Immelt used to be my boss. Well, my boss's boss's boss. But it's 10 times the company now that's owned by Comcast. I know that Synchrony was considered part of an atavistic portion of the GE finance division, but at least it had some real value that could have been used to offset these long-term care charges. But in the end, what really matters are those charges themselves. They just might force GE to cut its dividend yet again. The risk here is all from long-term care, some from power. As I see it, the Dow Jones average really just kicked out one sick health care company and replaced it with a healthier one. That's the only irony I see here. When G finally puts this issue to bed and takes a big charge for its SIM acquisition, its flagging power business, then I think we talk bottom. Until then, irony is not a good reason to buy any stock, least of all this one. Hey, David in Pennsylvania. David. Hey, Jim. David. What's going on with Cummins? They had a great first quarter, and then their stock fell from about one hundred below. They had some engine to problems. To Literally, had manufacturing problems, and for one of these great manufacturers, that was a real comeuppance. Uh, I keep waiting to get to the bottom of it, but I'm frankly can't do it yet. Jose in California, please, Jose.
2: Booyah, Jim from America's finest city here in San Diego, California. How you doing?
1: Oh, it is. It is so beautiful there. And go Qualcomm. I, I, I keep hoping they get that deal closed with next What's up?
2: Yeah, I'm just telling you about um, ticker symbol GD, General Dynamics. I um, yes. just wanted to know, give your take on... Um, is this Private a good planes are or- bad,
1: my friend. Private planes are bad, and the world is turned off, turned off by anything ever since Korea, anything defense. I'm going to urge you to stick with it, but boy, this stock, this group is in a market. Francesca in Ohio. Francesca.
0: Yes, Mr. Kramer, we've made a lot of money off your advice, so thank you very much. My question today is for solar, a solar manufacturer here in the U.S., along with, in conjunction with uh, SunPower, which installs and does maintenance on solar panels, just bought out 8.3, which is a sales company for solar power. How do you feel that that's going to benefit all the companies involved?
1: Well, first, an apology. It's Francisco, obviously, not Francesca. I would say... uh, That First Solar is a company that has been both downgraded and upgraded so many times in the last four weeks that it is beyond the ken of this particular guy. It is a cheap stock, but holy cow, there is way too much politics involved in that industry right now. GE is a tragedy, but it is a financial tragedy. I can't say we're at the bottom with this one. It's just too difficult a story. Much more have money ahead, including my exclusive with the CEO of Williams-Sonoma. Is it time to make a home for the company in your portfolio? And two similar companies with two very different fates. I'm telling you what to make of Intuit versus H&R Block. And up to 15 million Americans have food allergies, including 5.9 million children under age 18. I'm talking to one company that's trying to do something about it. So stick with Kramer.
2: If it's found in the home, chances are it's also found in this house of brands. Can Williams-Sonoma furnish innovation and make your portfolio feel like home sweet home?
1: Can the incredible resurgence of retail continue? Lately, we've seen some miraculous comebacks in the space, including Williams Sonoma, the high-end home goods chain that reported a blowout quarter a little less than a month ago. The stock, which had been trading sideways for more than two years, quickly broke out the levels we hadn't seen since 2015. So, can this thing keep climbing? Earlier today, we got a rare, rare opportunity to check in with Laura Alber. She's the president and CEO of Williams Sonoma at the New York Stock Exchange. Take a look. Laura, you are in a unique position. You've got unbelievable brick and mortar assets. But at the same time, we're talking about 54% e-commerce. How did that come about? And what's the advantage of that?
0: You know, I've been with the company 24 years. And when I walked in the door, we were 40% catalog at the time. And so because of that catalog heritage, when the internet came along, it was very easy for us to make that transition because we had the ability to ship directly to a customer. And we also had a wonderful house file, knew how to market one-on-one, which is really different than marketing in a mass way.
1: Well, it seems like you've also taken marketing to the next level. You understand digital very well. You're actually handling your own advertising. This transition, which has been very slow for some, is rapid for you. What's in your background that you've been able to pull this off?
0: You know what's great? We live so close to Silicon Valley. So we are constantly down there talking to Google, talking to Facebook, doing testing with them. And because we have seven brands, we can try something here before we roll it across the brands. It's really, really interesting and fun. You've
1: embraced the notion of knowing what the customer wants more than anyone. And I'm wondering why that isn't because you've you've kind of really digitized it. It's no longer just feedback from the floor, which you get. It's also kind of big data feedback.
0: Yeah, we see a lot of data. We can see what you like, what you're likely to buy next. Um, and we see that as service. So we're we're working towards a lot more content in our communication with you that's relevant to you. It's personalized. And we, we really believe that is... The future is really personalizing the shopping experience for, every per- for everyone who comes to our, our stores or into, um, onto our websites.
1: And is that part of your push into uh, virtual reality, which I think is the only way we're going to buy higher-end furniture and know what it looks like in our place?
0: You know, it is not easy to put a room together. No. And we purchased Outward, which is a, you know, a premium 3D imaging and augmented reality platform. And they have the capability to build photo reel images that then can be manipulated in a lot of ways that help you decorate your home. And so we're coming out with what I think is game-changing uh, 3D room planner very soon here, um, where you're gonna be able to drag and drop into your room our products. And this is the first consumer-facing 3D room planner that's out there versus having to have a designer do it for you.
1: Well, let's go the other way, too. Uh, If you, say, had knockoff or inexpensive furniture online, a competitor, uh, they would be at a distinct disadvantage to what you're talking about.
0: Well, there's a lot of people selling a lot of things. I think when it comes down to it, furniture is something that needs to be of quality. You know, you you sleep in your bed a lot of hours, you sit on that sofa, and I think if something's too cheap, someone's getting hurt. And we make furniture that lasts. We make furniture that is heirloom quality. And at the same time, Because we control our sourcing and we have so many in-house designers, we're able to give you great value for for the money.
1: Talk to me about the in-house advertising. A lot of people spend a lot of money with advertising firms. Either you have tremendous insight or just you also have great analysis of what sites, you call them uh, sites that are particularly relevant for video. How do you know
0: all this? We've been doing it for a while, and just like anything else that's core, we like to take what's core and learn to do it ourselves the best because we believe that no one's going to care more than our own people. Now we do third-party things where someone has a specialty, but you know, doing your media buying and understanding how you really build a brand online is so important.
1: Now, there is a counterintuitive notion to a lot of the commentary you put, you put out, and that is, and this is the storyline that I see, stores remain one of our key competitive advantages. In the era of Amazon, I thought brick-and-mortar was dead, particularly mall brick-and-mortar. You are telling me the exact
0: opposite. Well, even Amazon believes that they should have some f- real, real spaces. And, you know, when you go into a store and it's wonderful, it's it's um, it helps you make the the purchase. And we see our best customers cross-channel. Um, and there's a lot of people just online. There's a lot of people just focused on big stores. We are focused on both because we know that's how you shop.
1: Now, uh, not a lot of commentary from you about millennials, but I know that millennials, they start all the purchases by going online, but they also are value-centric. It seems like you've given something for everyone and you've you put in an element of value, but quality value. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. What's I think unique about us is that we're one of the few that has multi-brand, that covering a wide range of aesthetics and demographics, and we're multi-channel, and we can really um, grow with the customer. So whether they come in through West Elm, you know, and then through their life have kids, Potter Barn kids, Potter Barn move to the suburbs, whatever they we have a brand, we have a product line for them. And at the same time, it's so important that even for a Potter Barn customer, we give them value in smaller size furniture. So we this year launched Potter Barn Apartment, which has been really incremental. It's a new customer and you might have heard me say that our new customer counts are way up. Right. It's these initiatives, these initiatives that bring in new customers, whether it's price point, or whether it's a collaboration with another designer or even we just did something I think pretty interesting which is um, we put Pottery Barn Kids with West Elm to develop a kids line, mid-century kids line. And that's new thinking for us because in the past we thought about each brand individually. So now we're saying how do the brands work together to produce a more innovative product?
1: Now I think that throughout that whole uh, range of uh, the panoply You have stuck by something that I think some of the analysts want to see higher gross margins. What you have been saying is, look, we are going to offer more competitive product pricing, including shipping. Now, we all know that shipping costs have gone up. How can we not have this compression gross margins?
0: You know, the shipping um, that we do is a different level of delivery than most, we do white glove. We bring it into your home, we set up the bed. We don't just do a door drop and expect you to put together. Now we have some furniture that is um, you know, UPS and knockdown. down, but most of our furniture comes into the home and it's two person delivery. And the customer understands that that is not free. We reduced our shipping prices, so we are very competitive now. And that did last year affect operating margins, but we are lapping that this quarter.
1: There are competitors who uh, offer a different level, not white glove, maybe not glove at all. And there's tremendous breakage, and that's a problem with furniture. I imagine that your strategy has kept breakage down, which yes. could really be a problem for gross mortgages.
0: Right. It is a big deal, and it's also a problem for the customer. Right. I mean, when you do things right for the customer, usually it turns out to work on the PL as well. And returns and replacements are a huge number on any retailer's PL, particularly if you're in the furniture business.
1: Right. Now, uh, what are the video channels that really do work?
0: Um, YouTube.
1: YouTube. How works. to hang a
0: drape. YouTube how to works. cook a turkey. Uh, Facebook works. You Th- know. That's really it's, it, right? Those, you know, we're we're testing all sorts of things. Um, we love our, the bloggers and what they do and the stories they tell. We put videos on our own sites. We are now emailing videos. Um, Customers love the movement. They love learning how to do things. And with our Williams-Sonoma brand, we have such an opportunity. Recipes are, our recipes are one of our most clicked things on our site and they're out, you know, of course all over the internet. And it's, it's such an example of bringing the brand to life and helping the customer with our products. Really celebrate.
1: One last question. I see a lot of the analysts are saying, "Well, listen, times are it, it's going to get competitive. They've got tougher comps down the road." I see West Elm doing great. I see the rest of your brands really accelerating. I don't know. We have longer-term shareholders of Watchman Money. I don't think, should the next fo- quarter be the focus here?
0: I think we have momentum well past the next quarter. We have so many initiatives that are going to be incremental. And um, we've been working so hard to set ourselves up for this disrupted times, and we see it as an opportunity.
1: Well, thank you very much to Laura Albers. A really, really terrific job that you have done. Thank you. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Laura is the president and CEO of Williams-Sonoma. Thank you. Tech can digitization still be on the rise? I keep telling you about how software is transforming the way we do business, especially software that's delivered via the cloud. And I think this story remains in its early innings. But this isn't the 1990s. How is it possible that this process of digitization is still ongoing? Okay, if you want to understand what's happening here, we need a concrete example that really puts things in perspective, and I've got one. Rather than just talking about e-commerce or enterprise software, tonight I'm going to tell you about tax preparation. Yep, consider the case of H&R Block, the largest brick-and-mortar tax preparation firm in the country, versus Intuit, the company behind TurboTax, which lets you fill out all of these forms on your computer. Over the last decade, Intuit's stock has steadily worked its way higher, increasingly almost tenfold. Meanwhile, H&R Block is up about $1 over the same period. Now, H&R Block has repeatedly tried to make a comeback, but the stock eventually turns into a punching bag. Oliver, it feels like... A dinosaur. Just last week, the company issued some very disappointing guidance. And since then, the stock has lost nearly 20% of its value. Remember the last time we heard from Intuit in late April, the numbers were fantastic, and the stock has continued its long march higher. For both stocks, the recent action has been a microcosm of the longer-term performance. So why is it that Intuit's on fire while H&R Block is getting crushed? A big part of it comes down to digitization. Intuit's all about going digital, but diversification plays a role, too. See, H&R Block is as close as it gets to a pure play on tax preparation, and and, and the company's very much tied to its 10,000-company-owned Brick-and-mortar locations. And to on the other hand, is more diversified with a host of different uh, products. There's TurboTax for tax preparation, QuickBooks for uh, bookkeeping, Mint for personal finance. They've got offerings for small businesses, ordinary consumers, and even professional accountants. But really, all else equal, wouldn't you rather file your taxes online with TurboTax than make an appointment at H&R Block and talk to an actual accountant? This is why, for years, I've consistently recommended Intuit over H&R Block. They're like the Amazon of tax preparation. They have the best digital offering. They control roughly two-thirds of the market. And it's making them a fortune, by the way. If you have bought the stock on my recommendation, you're doing pretty darn well to us. It's more than doubled since I started pushing aggressively a little over, say, two years ago, when I met visionary CEO Brad Smith, while also falling in love with the product as a user at my small-plate Mexican restaurant, Bar San Miguel. Hey, it is, yes, idiot-proof. Trust me. What makes the disparity even more glaring, though, is that Intuit is incredibly well-run, while h and Block has had some major problems. Last May, they announced a leadership transition, with the old CEO stepping down at the end of July. But they didn't announce a replacement until late August, bringing in Jeff Jones from Uber. The stock sold off hard in response, despite having a pretty strong tax season last year. Now, going into this tax season this year, there was a lot of optimism as investors figured the tax reform bill would spur more people to get professional help, and the stock crept back up. So how did that turn out? Well, when h and Block reported last week, the actual quarterly results themselves, they were fine. Modest top and bottom line beat. Looking good, right? But management's guidance for the 2019 fiscal year fell well short of Wall Street's expectations, especially their earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization forecasts. Then, adding insult to injury, on Thursday, the Wall Street Journal reported that H&R Block is closing forwarded locations. Jeff Jones actually put it uh, quite bluntly on the conference call, quote, we aren't as relevant as we need to be in today's consumer, uh, and well, uh, end quote. I mean, points for honesty. H&R Block does have online offerings, but Intuit continues to run circles around them. Just like we saw uh, with the record stores and the bookstores, the brick-and-mortar tax preparation business might be in serious long-term secular decline. Intuit, on the other hand, very different story. Whereas investors own H&R Block for tax season, and only tax season, Intuit has a bunch of out-of-season businesses that make them a money, make them money all year round. Especially QuickBooks, uh, uh, their accounting software with a rapidly growing cloud offering. By the way, fantastic for small, and medium-sized business, which you know is having halcyon days since the tax reform. And when tax time does roll around. Well, those numbers were included into its latest quarter, where the company gave you a nice top and bottom line beat. More importantly, they painted a very rosy picture in the conference school with 15% revenue growth, largely propelled by the strength of the company's online ecosystem. We just had CEO Brad Smith on the show a few weeks ago, and he told a pretty compelling story. Take a look. This was a crazy year in tax. You know, the government passed the tax legislation late. The IRS opened up for business late. As a result, we had to get our product ready, but they got out there. They produced a killer product. We picked up market share. We grew the category, and we delivered results that were 15% revenue growth versus guidance of 7 to 9%. So it was a really good year for our tax business. Yeah, that number was up as big as the forecast was down at h and Block. I say, holy cow. No wonder that stock caught fire. it just launched TurboTax Live, where you can get online access to a tax professional anytime if you really want to at your own convenience. Tax preparation is a service. And, of course, small businesses love QuickBooks. Long story short, Intuit keeps crushing H&R Block because they're not really comparable anymore. H&R Block remains a bricks-and-mortar tax prep chain. Intuit's become a diversified software company and really more of a play on the digitization of finance, especially for small medium-sized businesses. Bottom line, we live in a world where technology almost always triumphs. That's why Intuit's been crushing H&R Block. And it's why I still like Intuit's stock, even after its incredible multi-year move. H&R Block... Hard pass. Mad Money's back in for the break. It is time. It is time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate. Daddy, it's time for the light round. I'm going to start with Eric in New Jersey. Eric. Who
2: ya Jim? How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you so much for asking. How about you?
2: Great, great, thank you. I'm a little bummed on my stock Cognex, CGNX, has been in the dumps. Should I? The better one is here Rockwell or Automation. Find-
1: better one's Rockwell Automation. Or go with Emerson, yeah, EMR, which my capital trust owns. You can follow along ah, at ActionistPlus.com Club. I think you'll feel better about it. Let's go to Richard in Connecticut. Richard! Richard! I'm here yo, yo. question on, on Under Armour. Took a big position in the stock around 14, 15 before the May earnings. It was a good result. I listened to all the comments from the new president, and he seems to be on the ball, at, at least straighten things out. I look for, I think it's going to have further improvement. The stock has another 10, 20, point, 10, 20 points in it longer term. Question is, should I buy some here, wait for a pullback, or just hold what I've got. And this is which stock? Under Armour. Oh, because we like Frisk and we like Kevin oh, Plank. Oh Look, we got buying that stock at 14 dollars The advice of actually my wife, Lisa, who demanded that, that Kevin Plank come on the show and explain why his stock isn't going to go up. He came on. It's been a winner, and it's going to stay that way because he is Doug in Ma- Minnesota. Doug.
2: Hello, oh. Jim, my financial guru. Oh, okay. How are you? Good. Yourself?
1: Not bad. Thank you for asking.
2: I bought NovoCure on your advice back in December. I'm up 65%. Am I being the hog Look, the for wanting to worked. hold on to it? thing I don't
1: know why people didn't believe me. I guess because they didn't know anyone who had been using it. And it is a remarkable device. Bill Doyle, the chairman, brought it to us. And I continue to think, even up here now, it is an all-time high today. that that Novacure is a good company. So I'm not going to back away. I do not understand the skepticism, but you have to see it to believe it. I need to go to Manish in New York. Manish. Mr. Kramer, what a pleasure to talking to you, sir. And I think you are the most honest guy on the street. And I make a lot of mistakes, but I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you,
3: sir. Uh, My
2: question for you is... FireEye. What are your talk about FireEye? Fire is minded- good.
1: I mean, let's go over the pecking order. I think the proof point is better. I think that uh, Palo Alto Networks, how I like that in- huge insider buy by Nikesh Arora. And then uh, I have to tell you, I like Nice more. I like Fortinet more. I like Cybrock more. And then I will endorse FireEye. Greg in Illinois. Greg. Professor Kramer. Professor? Yes. Uh, love you,
3: Phil. So, uh, thank you very much for your help. Bye bye. Um, Jim, uh, Jim, I'm feeling very hungry. I uh, was wondering if I should be nibbling on some Weight Watchers. Well, I mean, the, that's, well, better calories. late
1: than never. I don't know. I mean, the stock is just, it's orange. It's up 132%. I have no value added up 132%. We got to go to Momentum guys who say, listen, it's going to go up 200%. That is not me. I need to go to Ronald in my home state of Pennsylvania. Ronald. Hello, Jim. Hi. My wife and I are retired.
2: Our portfolio is mostly growth and dividend stocks, almost all of which I reinvest, and several stocks I'm playing with that house's money. A typical stock is Bristol-Myers. With rising rates, do you think we should hold or sell? Bristol-Myers
1: for- at a 3% yield with some, a decent pipeline. I'm not going to tell you to get rid of it. They probably do. Frankly, they got to do something because I, I can tell you that uh, Optivo's just not doing it, a, a, as well as Keytruda, which is Merck's anti-cancer drug. But you know what? I can't tell people to sell Bristol Mars down here. That would be short-sighted. How about Nate in Ohio? Nate. Jim. My Nate. name is Nate Scott. I'm a, I'm a student at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, so I want to give a a nice. Red Hawk. Booyah. Like that. What's up? So the stock I want to ask you about is Chegg, ticker is C-H-G-G. Okay, it's Chegg is $3 at $3, okay? We told Dan Rosenzweig to came on 3 four, five. Here the stock is at 29 I think even Zach Ertz, the great number 86, who I'm going to draft in the second round. He plays for the Eagles, a tight end. He was on that bus too. But Chegg up here, I got to tell you, I got to wait for it to go lower. And that, ladies and up the Lightning Round!
2: The Lightning Round. Is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
1: It's been tough to own the biotechs for the better part of a year, but lately some of the smaller players have seen their stocks take flight. What is the incredible run in Sarepta yesterday? If biotechs can get traction here, there's a whole universe of speculative stocks that might be worth owning. Take Immune Therapeutics, A-I-M-T. It's an early-stage biotech that uses immunotherapy to help patients overcome potentially life-threatening allergies. For example, their lead drug, AR-101, which is in phase three development, reduces the severity of peanut allergies. Given the increasing prevalence of food allergies, this could be potentially a very, very big deal. So let's take a close look with Dr. Stephen Dilley, who just stepped down yesterday as the CEO of Immune Therapeutics. Get a better sense of what this company does and where it's headed before he moves on. Dr. Dilley, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Good, good, good. Have a seat. Now, one, you. in your most recent and a terrific Bank of America presentation, you said that your urgent priority is to provide kids, young adults, and their families with protection, peace of mind, and freedom from food allergies. Describe how you're doing that.
3: Okay, what we're doing is taking a technique that's been around for a while called oral immunotherapy and we're making it widely available. And the idea is that you give people the very protein that they're allergic to, starting in incredibly small quantities they won't react to, and over time, you give them a little bit more and a little bit more until they can tolerate much more protein. And what we're trying to do is get to a level where we're gonna protect them against the accidents that inevitably happen in life. So if you're peanut allergic, it's the problem is not not eating peanuts. It's avoiding all the things that peanut protein might be in. Right. Okay. I think that you used a great term for that. I mean, well, first
1: of all, let's discuss this. Yeah. This this market is much bigger than people realize,
3: right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There are probably, if you took it, look at food allergy, it's probably 20 million people in this country have food allergy. Three million of them have a significant peanut allergy. So that's massive. About half of those are age 4 to 17. And... The impression that we probably both have that peanut allergy is getting more prevalent is absolutely true. It is true. It is true. We don't exactly know why. Um, There are several really good ideas. One of them is that we're all too clean these days, the hygiene hypothesis. Another one is the use of antibiotics early in life. Mm -hmm. Another one is that the whole idea about dietary restriction. And it used to be that the surgeon general would tell you to avoid peanuts in the first year of life. That's turned totally on its head and now early exposure is the goal. So yeah. it all says we don't know. All right, well, now we've got some foods in front of us. We've got to go over what we have here. Right, so, so you made the point that we're trying to protect kids and young adults, and I've, I've brought some sort of age-appropriate foods here for, that, that might cause accidents. So think of the kid at the birthday party and there's the jar of candy. Right. You know, half of those contain a dangerous amount of peanut protein to an allergic patient. The other half don't. And just by looking at them, you can't tell. No. Right? This, you know, Kids and student, college students, mole, right? Something that they like to cook sure. with. One of these has significant amounts of peanut protein, the other one doesn't. You really can't tell just by a, a quick glance at them, okay? Even worse, if you go to your friend's house and they've made it for you, are they gonna know what's in it? So this is all about why the accidents really happen. And what we've done is, is looked at all the research about when someone has a problem, how much peanut have they been exposed to? Right. And it tends to be about 100 milligrams or more, which is half a peanut or maybe one or two peanuts. That's it. But some people can react at very small quantities, maybe a 30th of a peanut. So it's about protecting them against all those gamuts of exposures they could have, so bad things don't happen.
1: Now you've got some interesting uh, companies you want to collaborate with, or you're collaborating with Regeneron, which is a company we've liked very yep. much. Uh, you talk about your friends at Nestle Health Sciences. So there's some very big companies that want yep. in to this uh,
3: particular uh, niche that you're involved in. Right. So we've got three big collaborations right now. One of them is with the Golden Peanut Company, which is a subsidiary of Archer Daniels Midland. Okay. Um, and they provide us with an extremely high quality raw material, which is our starting product for, for AR-101, the, the peanut mix. Right. Um, then we have a collaboration with Nestle Health Science, which is all about where we can go together. Because starting peanut algae is very interesting, but another algae you might not have thought about is egg allergy. One of these mm-hmm. two angel hairs has egg in it, the other one doesn't. If you're a kid with egg allergy, that's a real problem because it's not that you can't eat raw egg or scrambled eggs it's that it's in all kinds of stuff like bread and pasta and everything and if you're egg and milk allergic then that's a real problem and quite often those those kids present via the dietitian because they're effectively malnourished they're not getting a proper diet they don't thrive they don't grow as well as they should and so with Nestle what we're doing is looking at all the sort of gamut of different food allergies that we could treat and thinking about the the ones where like peanut allergy it's about prevent and avoid right but there are the ones like milk and egg where the objective is to reintroduce into the diet and that's a great company to be working with and thinking about how you can present very structured. Well,
1: things. you've got great, great uh, partners. You've got a great mission. And I think it's a much bigger universe than most people realize. That's, that's Dr. Stephen Dilly. He's the former CEO of, of Immune Therapeutics, but just from yesterday. And I think it's a pretty interesting story, going from being speculative to being investable. Thank you so
3: much, Dr. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow.